Hey there, welcome to the 26th episode of the JewishDrinking.com podcast and video show. I'm Rabbi Drew Kaplan, your host, and I'm very excited, not only because Passover is over, but we can, because we can have beer again. And to celebrate this, we're discussing how beer became acceptable in the Babylonian Talmud for doing Havdalah. Today we have so. with us Professor Jordan Rosenblum, who is the Belzer Professor of Classical Judaism, in addition to his 2010 book on food and identity in early rabbinic Judaism, as well as his 2016 book, The Jewish Dietary Laws in the Ancient World. He also has a 2020 book on rabbinic drinking, so you can go check that out. The link's down below in the description. And we have, uh, today, we're actually talking about something that comes up in rabbinic drinking, the book, which is how beer became acceptable for Havdalah. So I'll just, the background is basically, it was always wine. For the, the early rabbis, it was always wine until we get to an incident that occurs on Pesachim 107a. As you mentioned, the, the, in, in Tanit texts in uh, Mishnah Sefta, everyone is talking about um, wine and they're imagining wine culture. So you look at Rachot and they're talking all about the blessings over you know, wine and the, the importance of that. And it gets its own, if you think about it, it's very few things get their own blessings, right? There's no blessing, unique blessing for meat. For example, yeah. right? But wine gets its own blessing, um, and uh, most other things, you know, there's no separate blessing for, there's no special blessing for apple juice versus apple, right? But there is a special, uh, a special blessing for a fermented grape versus a grape, right? And so clearly, wine gets is singled out um, blessing-wise, and there's all, and wine plays a very central role in. Um, ritual, particularly um, related to Shabbat, right, mm -hmm. and 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 festivals where um, it's it, you know, there's an opening kiddush, there's an opening wine blessing, essentially, and then part of the closing ceremony of uh, of these events, um, Havdalah, which separates this um, sacred from profane time, involves uh, intimately a wine blessing, and. Then in Babylonia, which is a beer drinking culture, not a wine drinking culture. Oh, can I, can I, pause? Yeah. I was going to pause you, which is to say that it's throughout, really throughout the entire early rabbinic literature, wine is the beverage par excellence. Yes. And, it's a, and it's, it really is a given. Like, even when they talk about Kiddush, that obviously you're going to do it over wine. That that's, and for, for in Israel, in, Pal in the land of Israel, Palestine, that was what they had. That, and what yeah. else? Like it was, it was plentiful. It was all around, but it becomes a problem as you're pointing out in Persia slash Babylonia. Right. It's not. Uh, thank you for that clarification. It's important to say that it wasn't even a thought that you would think of anything else. Like why would you? And then in Babylonia, which is a beer drinking culture, um, that question it's only there. It's only in the Bible. It's only in the Babylonian Talmud that they they start to say, well, wait a second, does it have to be wine? Couldn't it be beer? And that sets up um, the so yeah, the the passage that you um, want to talk about um, because that background um, is necessary to understand why this becomes an issue. Yeah. And, um, and, wanna... and and I think what's literarily fascinating is how the sugya unfolds, how the discussion yeah. in the Talmud, which isn't it, it's actually the opposite. In most discussions in the Talmud, it usually flows chronologically. Right. As an earlier text followed by a later text followed by an even later text. However, here it's the exact opposite, that the whole discussion is really brought to a head by a crisis caused by a singular incident. And so we start with a later incident, then we have to go, 
And really, the, the, the literary arrangers of the Talmud are trying to reconstruct it, but in a reverse chronology. And it, it, you, I mean, you can really tell that there's an anxiety about it. Yeah, there's such an anxiety that um, if you really try and follow it all the way through, it, the ultimate answer, not to give away the ending, right? So, uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert is the best answer you really come away with reading this text is um, that for Kiddush, you really should only use wine. But for Havdalah, you could use beer, but maybe you shouldn't. But it's not clear you could. And there's no, and even all the reasons behind it, even aren't quite explicit. Like, and that's the problem. And part of the issue they have, right, is the assumption that, of course, you'd use this for wine. So there was no precedent to say no to anything else. Um, so part of you're, you're right about the mixed up chronology, but also there's the, the there's not a satisfying ending if you just stick to the Bavli texts. Yeah. So let's let's hop into it. So let's start off with the incident. Do you mind reading yeah. that? So, so it starts off with a story where you have um, Mayanuka and Markashisha, who were Rav Chizda's sons, and they, um, they tell this story um, to Rav Ashi that they had a buddy, a Maymar. He comes to visit them, right? And it's Shabbat, and they don't have wine. And it doesn't tell us why they don't have wine, but they live in Babylonia, and I, I'm, I'm, I live now in Wisconsin, right? So it's a good beer drinking state. So I feel that um, I'm representing the citizens of Wisconsin well to, to point out that it's just like in Wisconsin. You'd expect there to be beer in the home, but not necessarily wine. And, um, and so they didn't have any beer. They didn't have any wine. They had beer. And they didn't think anything of it. Their friend was visiting. They were excited to have their friend. They, they thought it was totally fine. So they didn't um, prep ahead of time for it. Um, so he, uh, so they bring a beer, it's time to have a dala, but he wouldn't do it. And this has been part of a discussion of, can you eat, um, if, if this hasn't happened, like she, can you eat before this? So what's going to happen? So he ends up going to bed hungry. And by um, the way, and, and clearly a Maymar is working off of the entire rabbinic precedence, which is yeah. it's only over wine. Yeah. It didn't even enter in his mind that you could do anything other than wine. Well, it's a perfect incident, uh, example of, for a Maymar, you're right, it didn't occur to him that it occur, that um, you would use anything other than wine. Yeah. And for Mavgizda's um, sons, it didn't occur to them that you would need wine. So mm -hmm. neither of them, like both of them are acting without having put thought into the opposite thing. And so um, it's, it's, and I'm not exactly sure, you, it's hard to imagine that Mavgizda's sons wouldn't know that wine is, is, has is used by many others, but maybe we have to suspend that disbelief for a moment. Um, so the, then it says the next day they troubled themselves. They they went out talk. Now they 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 go and um, they find some wine for him. So clearly they went and they did have dal over beer. They realized he wasn't going to do it. So they then went. Now it's it's no longer Shabbat for them. So they run get some wine for him, and um, he's able to recite and do it. Great. Skip ahead now. So the following year, he comes to visit them again. And clearly, he's forgotten about this, right? Because he doesn't say, hey, guys, I'm coming again. Um, <laughs> is it OK if I bring some wine? Or could you maybe you know, stop by the store and grab some wine for me? He doesn't say anything. So th then they again, they bring him beer. And so he says, oh, if so, beer is the wine of this region, which is a great, um, great saying there. Um, and there was actually, um, I have it on my shelf, there was an exhibit about um, 
beer in, in um, Jews in Germany um, that that in German I can hear. I'll grab it off the shelf since I can show. It says beer is divine dieses Landes. So beer is the wine of these lands. Oh. <laughs> it's um, and it exhibits a there's a beer stein with a Jewish star on it. Um, and so it becomes a, a, a nice stock phrase. And he says, oh, beer is the wine of this region. And so then he recites Havdal over it. So for him, the second time, he, sees it, he says, oh, this must be the wine of the region. So if you just had that story, yeah, this is one of these interesting things. If you just had that story, you would think, oh, if beer is the wine of the region, you use the wine of the region. Yeah. But it's not that simple. But I, I, and I want to point out something that you mentioned in your book that's coming out about the names of Rav Chitz's sons. Do you want to share that? Oh, yeah. So um, it's kind of interesting with the, the his sons, um, if you look at their names, Marianuka, Mark Shisha, they can mean a variety of things, right? There's five different possibilities for, for their names, right? So, um, so Mar means master in Aramaic. Um, and so um, you have Marianuka could mean young master, Makshisha could mean old master. So, um, and with this, the reason I point this out, um, I should back up for a second. The book Rabbinic Drinking is about using rabbinic texts about drinking to introduce main themes in rabbinic literature. And so the idea is to be an accessible introduction to themes in rabbinic literature. And along the way, I wanted to kind of point out some of the things that. Um, or maybe disorienting at first, but after you spend a lot of time with this literature, you just kind of accept them just like you accept wine or beer as being totally normal in these things. And one of the things is names and seeing the ways that names can hint at things. So this is a moment where I took a moment to reflect on all the possibilities of things you can read into these names. And so, so one could be that these are their actual names. Maybe that's their, just their straightforward names. Um, Another possibility is their nicknames that for one's, you know, this is one's old master, one's young master, maybe one is, you know, the older brother and one's the younger brother. Um, so another possibility that's offered is that their nicknames for, um, that one was born when he was a young guy, when Pizda was young, right? So, and then one was born when he was older. Um, in other words, they both had the same names and this distinguished them. I think of George Foreman, right, who named all his kids George. <laughs> um, and the, they had the same name, which was Master, and this is how you distinguish them. So, which is a slight variant between the, the four, but there's a, these are five possibilities for it. And the, the other reason um, we were talking about this earlier, and you pointed out how this kind of disrupts a little bit of the flow of the book when I point this out, but I actually think it's really important because um, I think students just blow past the name sometimes because like, well, these, weird, these names look weird, I'm going to move past it. But um, oftentimes the name gives you some foreshadowing or some information or some pun that's going to be played that you won't get. The, we, we've um, talked elsewhere about Rav Papa, right? If you see the name Rav Papa and you see beer, you need to know the whole backstory, right? If you see, it, it's impossible sometimes to see um, someone make a con. There's a um, famous example. Sometimes I'll teach students. Um, uh, first uh, chapter of Avot, and you have Shimon ben Shetach talking about, so Simon ben Shetach talking about being very deliberate in certain matters, and then if you know his backstory about how he went and indiscriminately killed a bunch of witches, um, which is a problematic incident, it's, it, it reads as irony that he's the one saying, be very careful about how you do things. So um, 
taking a moment to think about the names and the backstories of these people helps understand the text a lot more. Hey there, I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. We've still got a bunch more of the show to go. I just want to let you know that later on in this episode, I'll give you a sneak preview into next week's episode, which is also beer related. Um, so we have um, Rav Hunas and Rav Chizda. Can we use beer for Kiddush? Right? Um, because they were talking about Havdalah, now we moved to Kiddush. Right? And so now they start saying, well, let's, I'm trying to figure it out with regard to, they talk about figs, dates, and Dillman dates. So they're talking about higher quality beers. So this is a standard rabbinic discussion, right? Let's look at, it becomes the, the Kavachom or the how much, the more so. If I look at it for the, the highest quality, does it work? Because that answers for the lower quality, right? And he says, really, I couldn't get an answer if it works for that. So if I couldn't get out for the highest quality. And they kept asking up the chain. It right. went backwards in time. Like, oh, and, and my master's master asked his master who asked his master. No one knew. They right. couldn't figure it out. Right. And he's like, if I can't get a clear answer for that, the cheaps will. Right? What, how much the more? Like, and, but that also is very telling with this. Right? He keeps going back to find it, and he can't get a clear answer. Yeah. Which could be read to say, if no one said no, why can't it be yes? Right. But you get the feeling reading this that they're saying, if no one said yes, why should we say yes? Mm. Which, um, and behind a lot of these texts, what you notice is a tension between um, which should get the preference, beer or wine. And even in Babylonian texts that have a preference for beer, they still inherit texts that have a preference for wine, and they need to grapple with that. Yeah. So then it, it, they kind of use this to conclude that, okay, so because we couldn't get an answer for Kiddush, no. Mm -hmm. But we can for that. And they continue on to say, okay, so maybe for that. But then there there's, continues to be um, things that kind of take away from that, right? And, but yet it never fully resolves itself. So what you get the feeling is, is we couldn't find a reason to say no, but the answer is no for Kiddush. <laughs> But Havdalah, there's some precedent, but we don't like it, uh, except those who do. And it's left with a very, um, the feeling you get is no, but maybe. Yes. No, but maybe. Yes. Yeah. Later, throughout the rest of what goes on, there is this continued ambiguity also this like weird discomfort and flavoring of beer right of some some of the earlier the early they're really in the first few generations of the right. Amorim, have this discomfort with beer that mm -hmm. it wasn't the highest quality apparently although mm. i mean rava says something and then rav there's different relationships to it right um what i find funny is that eventually it gets down and it does, have, there is a Bryce, there is an early, there is a Tanaitic text mm -hmm. that ultimately says to, um, that in Mikachin al Shekhar, that you don't do Kiddush on beer. Don't do Kiddush, like it's very clear, but Mishim Rabbi Eliezer Bar Rabbi Shimon, Amr Mikachin. But some say you can do Kiddush. So even going all the way back to Tanaitic early rabbinic text, it's the same thing of don't do Kiddush on beer, but there is an opinion that you could. Mm -hmm. then, you're totally kitschable. 
And if beer could be kiddishable and you have the not necessarily nose all the way up the MRI chain and you get to a ton that says you could. So there's precedent even for kiddish. So if you could say there's wiggle room for kiddish, then Abdallah, then it's okay that what Omaymar did. Mm -hmm. This is why <clears throat> when I'm teaching like introduction to Judaism or, or any text that kind of goes um, a course that goes chronologically through time, I often say to my students, I'm really sad when we hit medieval times. Because if you study Bavli, you get a lot of the um, no, but maybe. Or you really shouldn't do that, but there's some precedent. And then when you hit medieval times, enters the time of codification. Mm -hmm. and, right, and so suddenly this complicated open debate, they're like, what's the answer? And, and there still is some debate and there's some interesting things that happen. I don't want to disparage my, my colleagues who are medievalists. But I always find that a very sad moment when you have to turn from that because there's so much open-ended and there's so much unresolved and a lot of my students dislike that right because they what's on the final right you know what's the answer yeah. and um and i'm always well the answer is it depends right um if if this is the case then yes if that's the case then no and potentially maybe or no but possibly um and i'm very comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. um but I tend to like when she hit medieval times because there's an answer then Right, like, you know, so for them now suddenly it's changed. You read rabbinic literature, you know, classical rabbinic Talmud on business practices, and it's the answers are less concrete. You read uh, Mishnah Torah on it, and you know, you, you know what it is because you know it's organized in a nice, clear way for you. One of the shocking things about reading that that sugya is just simply the the reverse chronology of it. Yeah, which which for any anybody who's used to reading Talmudic stuff, this clearly stands out because of how opposite it, it is stylistically for the the literary arrangement. But, but, it, but it's all prompted by this one incident, right? But it also works because it's prompted by the incident. But then if you see they they keep going back in time to find an answer, and there's no answer. And then as you point, they if you they go all the way back to Brighton, and even the Brighton that kind of gives an answer doesn't give an answer. So in some ways that points to the long history of this problem, and potentially, sometimes the organizing, um, the figure will show, it's, it's like a good editorial hand. You kind of set up what you want the conclusion to be, and by setting it up that way, it shows the shaky ground that a prohibition lies on. Or I usually explain this to my students by saying, you know, I ask them how many have siblings and how many of you have run, done that mad dash to the parent to be the first one to say to them, what happened? Because yeah. you instinctively know that you can then control the narrative and frame what your sibling says, right? <laughs> I want to be the first one who says that. And, so, and then in this instance, that weird chronology might be setting up because now you, you start with that story of wine is the region of, beer is the, re of the wine of the region. Then you're predisposed, you're primed and biased to read that the rest as on shaky grounds. And if you flipped it to say, well, no, but maybe, you'd be primed to say, well, there is the predominantly a no, although it's possible, why would you be going against that? And, and Khmar Medina is so fascinating because I think nowadays in common parlance, people just refer, like it can be like Coca-Cola or whatever people drink, and it's just a drink, but really it means wine of the land. It mm -hmm. just says wine was the plentiful beverage of uh, alcoholic beverage in Israel, beer was it in, in Babylonia. So 
I think that's important to keep in mind in considering this incident that happened yeah. in the bus. No. Right there. We're not done with the show just yet, but at this point, I want to give you a sneak preview into next week's episode, which is beer in the Bible. This word shakar that you mentioned, where every other language is clearly beer, every other Semitic language, and then somehow people started translating it as wine. Well, thank you so much, Professor Rosenblum, for joining us. And for everybody else out there, don't forget his book, Rabbinic Drinking, is available for sale. So thank you so much, and l'chaim. Thank you. All right, cool. Thank you again. Yeah.